Well, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Numbers chapter 13. Before I got married, I was not too familiar with the phrase home decor. I grew up with a brother and no sisters. Uh, My mom's goal was to keep us alive, uh, to keep the house clean and tidy, but she wasn't a very decorative person. Uh, There was always a ball being thrown or someone being thrown, and uh, she was afraid that whatever she bought, it would break. So the only real decor item I can remember in our home was my mom would buy decorative pillows, and she would put them throughout the house, which became something that we threw. Um, But we would be wrestling, my dad and I, or my brother and I, or all three of us, or whoever, and we would hear from the kitchen, be careful, those are $10 decorative pillows. But that all changed when I got married. Uh, My wife quickly informed me of the ways of Hobby Lobby in a place called Michael's. Um, She instructed me that the coffee table and the end table and the mantle and the wall's primary purpose is for decoration, to bring a bit of life into a tiny, small apartment or to our home. Not too long after learning that extremely important lesson, she then continued her discipleship uh, by explaining that (laughs) you don't just buy decorative things, but decorative things are designed per season. And growing up, I mean, we had Christmas decorations, but that was it. No, there's Valentine's, and then there's March with St. Patrick's Day, and then there's spring, and then there's summer, and then there's fall, and then there's Thanksgiving, and then there's Christmas. And uh, I got to know what all of that meant. Um, Yeah, as we're approaching our 30th year of marriage, you can imagine that our decorations have changed as we've as we started in the early 90s, so we had late 90s or late 80s, early 90s kind of decor, and how that's changed over the last three decades. But there's a new home decor item that is quickly overtaking our home. It's everywhere. Um, it is one that is on every flat surface, and we have one or two of these items present everywhere. And it's not only my wife who's purchasing them. As a matter of fact, I think I purchase more of them than she does. The decorative item I am referring to is the reader. (laughs) These are everywhere in my home. The kitchen, the dining room, the living room, the family room, don't ask me why, the bathroom, the garage. There are two sets in every car. Um, I'm 1.5, she's 1.25, and it's so bad that I don't care which one I grab. (laughs) Every probably fourth time I'm talking to my kids on FaceTime, they're like, Dad, take off mom's like rainbow glasses. (laughs) I'm like, my granddaughter's cute, I want to see her, I don't care if I'm cute, I just... We are at that age that reading anything, especially a menu at a restaurant, is impossible. It is humorous when we forget our readers at a restaurant. I've got the light on. I'm taking pictures, and then I'm making it bigger. (laughs) I mean, it's it's a double-double with cheese. What am I doing? I kind of know when I go. But when we put on these majestic readers, we obtain clarity, and we see distinctly, and everything is legible. 
Much like my ability to read my phone or the instructions on a food box is dependent on having a set of readers on, our God-honoring life as believers requires or is dependent on us seeing life through the lens of faith. If we don't see life through the lens of faith, I guarantee that we are sinning. We are doubting. We are struggling. We are depressed. We are not finding joy. Sharing the gospel with a coworker, living a life of purity, loving a difficult spouse, overcoming bitterness, and loving someone who has hurt us all require us to live a life of faith. If we see the opportunity before us through the lens of faith, we will succeed. But if we walk in unbelief, we'll fail. As that challenge or obstacle to to obey God and to live according to His will comes to us, if we walk in faith, there will be success. But if we are in unbelief, that is where we will stop. We will sin. God has prepared good works for each of us to accomplish, and each of us has been called to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and to love our neighbor. Each one of us is called to be light in a dark world and to live righteously in the midst of the world that is not only sinning, but oftentimes sinning against us. So how do we approach living according to our calling? How do we continue on in it and be successful? What keeps us from failing? What keeps us from stopping the endurance and and running from what God has called us to do? I think as we look through the pages of Scripture, we find that it, it deals with faith. Seeing life through the lens of faith. Simply put, faith in God is to accept all that He says and act accordingly. It is to trust His promises and to obey His commandments. Warren Wiersbe defines faith as simply obeying God in spite of how we feel, what we see, or what we think might happen. D.L. Moody says, Real, true faith is man's weakness leaning upon God's strength. And my favorite definition comes from Dave Haig. He puts it this way, Faith is a life-dominating conviction that whatever God has for me through obedience is better by far than anything this world or Satan can offer through selfishness and sin. Remember what the author of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 11. It was by faith that Noah prepared the ark. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed. It was by faith that Abraham offered up Isaac. It was by faith that Moses refused to be called the sons of Pharaoh's daughter. It was by faith he left Egypt. It was by faith that the walls of Jericho fell down after the Israelites had marched around them seven times. It was faith that led these men and women to action through the most difficult of obstacles. But but what does faith look like in the face of obstacles? How, How does it manifest itself when we hit that fork in the road? And we must decide if we're going to do what's right or are we going to run from what God has called us to do? Are we going to love that difficult person or are we going to respond in kind to that difficult person? Are we going to sacrifice our finances? Are we going to run toward purity and righteousness? What does it look like? Well, in our text today, we're going to see two groups 
that come to the same Y in the road, and yet they come to two very different conclusions with two very different results. How is faith manifested when we find ourselves in a particularly difficult situation or what leads us to make the right decision or endure the trial or righteously respond to evil done to us? As we come to our text this morning, we, want, we will see the nation of Israel confronted with the challenge of obeying God and claiming the land that was promised to them. To go and to take what was theirs. To see God glorified through the fulfillment of the promise that He had made to the nation of Israel. And we'll see two very different responses to the same challenges. But as we see, each of the differing groups saw through a different set of lenses, which then produced a different set of actions, which then resulted in something very different for the two different groups. As we look at this epic moment in the history of Israel, and one that would change the course of Israel for 38 years in its future, I want us to see the difference between looking at the calling God has for our lives through the lens of faith and through the lens of unbelief. Both groups looked at the same data. They saw the same thing. They scouted the same land. They saw the same people groups. They saw the same grapes. And yet, they came to very different conclusions and went in very different directions. One group's perception led them to sin, a removal of blessing and punishment, while the other group's perspective led them to obedience, led them to worship, and led them to blessing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, tell to, and he tells us that these things, Israel's history, happen to them, happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. So not only does the narrative of the Old Testament speak of what actually happened, not only does the Old Testament speak uh, of, of, of how he worked through the nation's history, but it's for us. It's for our instruction. It's for our example. So as we come to the 13th chapter of Numbers, I want us to see the example of faith and the example of unbelief. An example to follow an example to flee from so that we can glorify God in our lives and pursue God's will through the most difficult circumstances or the most challenging obstacles. Let's pray. Father, it is our desire to walk in faith. It is our desire to see you for who you are, to remember what you have said, to, to see your faithfulness in the past and believe and trust and hope in you working in that exact way in the future. But we are a people who lacks faith. We are a people who quickly forget. We are a people who are easily overwhelmed by what we see in front of us. And we ask that you would help us in our unbelief, that you would teach us through the example of these spies and the nation of Israel, that you would help us to face the challenges and the obstacles that present themselves to us. You would help us to see them through the lens of faith. 
and to walk faithfully in them in obedience and righteousness. And Father, may we enjoy the great blessing that comes from walking in a right relationship with you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our text begins, uh, it finds us, uh, at the very doorstep, Israel is at the promised land. The, the time has come for the people to, uh, people of Israel to take the land that God had promised them. It had been just over a year since the miraculous exodus from the slavery in Egypt. They had come to Kadesh Barnea, located along the border of Edom and Israel. They had come from slavery. The Lord had brought them now to the promised land. They are at the edge. They are looking into what God is going to give them. Our text begins in verse 1 of chapter 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out men for yourselves to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. As they find themselves at the precipice of the promised land, God calls Moses to send out spies to scout the land. He directs Moses to send a man from each of the 12 tribes to represent the 12 tribes to go and to see what God has promised. To see that God has fulfilled His end of the deal. To to see what they had been talking about and thinking about and meditating on for 400 years, over 400 years. And so in verses 4 through 16, we are introduced to the 12 spies commissioned for the task. And in verses 17 through 20, we're told what they were to scout out. Verse 17, when Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, go up there into the Negev. There go up to the hill country, see what the land is like. And whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and how is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are the people in open camps or in fortifications? And how is the land? Is it productive or unproductive? Are there trees in it or not? And show yourself courageous and get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So he recruits these spies, and then he tells them what to do. He says, go, scout out and observe what the land is like. Is it good or bad, lean or fat? Does it have trees and vegetations? He, he wanted to determine the productivity of the land's resources. And he even says, bring back some. Let us see, let us experience, let's eat some fruit together and be excited about what God has for us. Secondly, he says, scout out and observe the population of the land. Are there few or are there many? Are they strong or are they weak? Thirdly, he says, scout out and observe the fortifications of the cities. Are they open camps or do their cities have their walls and fortresses? He wanted to to see what they were going to come up against. Not in a sense to say we need to stop, but to grow their faith. We want to see what's there so that we can see how God is going to work through it. The narrative continues in verses 21 through 25 in describing how the spies carried out their task. 
where they traveled, what cities they came across, how they uh, traversed south to north and trekked somewhere around 500 uh, round-trip miles to observe this land. And after 40 days of scouting and spying, the spies come before Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel, and they share their findings. This is what we saw. This is what we observed. This is what we came to understand. And in verse 26, it says, And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land. So they reported to him and said, We came into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Listen to what Caleb says in chapter 4, verse 7, when he said, The land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. All that God had promised about the land was true. It was good land, and it certainly did flow with milk and honey. Now, at the commissioning of Moses, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, this is, listen to what the Lord said. He said, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their outcry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings, so I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Parasite, the, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. God had promised to give them a land that flowed with milk and honey, which was a, just a poetic description that emphasized the fertility of the soil and the prosperity of the land. And he also mentioned who would be there. And so as these spies come back, they see that the land is good, and they also see that what God had said 400 years ago about who would be in the land, they were in the land. They, said, they scouted the land and found it to be true. They even were able to bring them proof of the land's bounty, the grapes, the pomegranates, the figs. I don't know why they brought figs. That would cause me to say this isn't a good land. <laughs> Unless they're in a, f a fig Newton. Then that's a, good, that's a good fig. But in verse 28, this is, where, this is where the trouble begins. This is where things go off course. Ten of the spies say, nevertheless, God's truth has been, has been confirmed. God's promise has been confirmed, but nevertheless. We've seen God's miraculous work in getting us to this spot from where we were as slaves, but nevertheless. Nevertheless. Verse 31, we, we, we are not able to go up against the people, for, for they are too strong. Even though this is a land that God has promised, even though it flows with milk and honey, we cannot enter the land. The obstacle is too big. The task is too hard. But we also see that this was not the only evaluation presented by the spies. There are two spies that saw it differently. They gave a good report versus that evil report. 
Caleb, in verse 30, sought to quiet the people after the first report by saying, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we surely shall overcome it. A very different uh, conclusion to what he had seen. How could two groups come up with such different assessments of the same facts? These 12 men saw the same thing. They saw the same enemies. They saw the same cities. They saw the same fortifications. They saw the same grapes. Boom. Totally different conclusions. Well, I think they came to two different conclusions because they scouted the land through two very different lenses. The nevertheless report was a result of seeing things through the lens of unbelief. The by all means report was a result of seeing things through the lens of faith. Jump down to Numbers chapter 14, verse 11. God is responding to the spies' bad report and the nation's rebellion, um, and He clearly identifies the problem. Clearly identifies the problem. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people disrespect me how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs that i have performed in their midst at the beginning of chapter 14 we see the challenge being laid before the people so so the report is in now the people have to decide what they're going to do chapter 14 we see the challenge being laid before the people of israel will they walk by faith in the promises of god and take the land, or will they walk by sight and flee? Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised their voices and cried out. And the people wept that night, and all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the entire congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or even if we had died in this wilderness, so why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. And Joseph and Caleb of those who had spied out the land tore their clothes. They spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection is gone from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. Instead of trusting in God and marching into the land that He had promised to give them, The people grieved over the obstacles in front of them. They were overwhelmed by the obstacles in front of them. They began to grumble against their God-given leadership. They sought to replace their leaders. They began to make a plan to return back to the wilderness, back to Egypt, and back to slavery. And if it hadn't been for a miraculous Chapter 14, verse 10, working of God, they were ready to stone Caleb and Joshua and Moses 
and Aaron, the very representative of God. Obviously, we have two examples before us, one of unbelief, one of faith. For the time we have remaining, I want us to see three lessons that we can see through these examples that will help in our pursuit of walking faithfully through the difficult obstacles that we face in our pilgrimage for the Lord. First of all, as we look at this story, I want us to notice that unbelief removes God from the equation while faith sees God in everything. Faith sees God in the obstacle. Unbelief loses God in the obstacle. If we were to put the two different reports side by side, we would quickly see that the report of the ten spies was given as if God was not a part of the equation at all. Like He had no part of what was going on in the life of Israel. But, but if we looked at Caleb's, Caleb's report was mindful of God and His promises throughout. You, you can't get a sentence through Caleb's report without seeing God or, or seeing him think about God in that perspective. At the beginning of the evil spies report in chapter 13, verse 17, they said in referring to the promised land. Now, now just listen to how they've removed God from the equation. The land that you sent us to. Who? Moses. Wait, I thought God, I thought, that, I thought this was promised 400 years ago that God had done this through Abraham. I thought, I thought we were, you sent it. Completely removed God from the equation. Yahweh had stated at least 17 times in the Old Testament before this passage that he was going to give them the land of Canaan. The Lord had promised this very land to the descendants of Abraham multiple times in the book of Genesis and numerous times in the book of Exodus as he is is reaffirming it to Moses. And he mentions it again even 40 days earlier as they are being commissioned to go that this is the land that God had for you. Their lack of recognition of God is highlighted in their passing through the city of Hebron in, verses, in uh, chapter 13, verse 22. As they're, as they're scouting out the land, they go through the city of Hebron. Hebron was the place where God first promised Abraham that he would inherit this land. Hebron became the place where the promise started. And they're walking by it. And they're scouting it out. Hebron, they would have known the name. They would have known the history. They would have known that that is where it all started. Hebron is the place where Abraham acquired land to bury his wife Sarah. And the other patriarchs were later buried there. Genesis 23, Genesis 25, Genesis 35, Genesis 50. So they're walking past the bones of their forefathers who God had promised would this, this nation through, uh, that came from those forefathers, that, they, that this land that they would be given. And instead of remembering what transpired there and the promises made there, they reported about the Nephilim, these strong ones, these tyrants, this, the boogeymen that he saw they saw, who had come to refer to to superhuman kind of giants, big 
people. That, that's what they remembered about Hebron, the Nephilim. Not, this is the place where the promise was instituted. Look at verses thir- uh, 29 and 31 through 33. Here, we see that they only mention the people's fierceness and the city's fortifications. They, they, they identify what's going on. They were asked to scout that, but they scouted it without any understanding, any consideration of God. They spoke of the power and the prowess of the inhabitants of the land instead of the power and promise of God to deliver the land to them. We see the contrast with Caleb, and we'll look at that in just a minute. But they, they say, hey, these guys, they can fight. They're strong. Hey, they have cities that are fortified. But where is God in the equation? The very people that they saw are the very people that God told them that would be there. In their reasoning for not taking the land, they compared the power of the people of Canaan with what they lacked instead of comparing their obstacle with what God possessed. God is nowhere to be found. They even mention someone by name, Amalek, who was residing in the Negev. We see that in verse 29. The Amalekites were the people that God had granted victory over in just a few months ago when Moses raised his hands, and there was victory in that battle. But when he lowered his hands, they began to uh, diminish. And so Joshua held up the hands of Moses. And in that whole element in in Exodus 17, he says that God promised that he would have war against Amalek from generation to generation. But God's past words and God's past actions were absent in their mind. The Um, the Amalekites, they they were the reason they couldn't go. We can't go because of these powerful people. They forgot about God. But Caleb's report was very different, as I mentioned before. God described him in verse 14, 24, as having a different spirit. He had a a faith spirit. He, He saw things through the lens of who God was, what God had done, what God had said. He wanted the people to go forward and to take possession of the land because they would overcome it, verse uh, 30 of chapter 13. His report focused on the heavenly realm. All that he saw was God. Listen to what he said. If the Lord is pleased with us, He will bring us into the land. He begins with God and God's pleasure of them, and then he concludes with God that God will deliver us. He will bring us into the land. God was his concern and not the people of Canaan. The people of Canaan could all be in cities that were fortified. They could have had all of the present day military uh, equipment. They could have had our military equipment back in that day. But his focus was not on them. His focus was on God. His focus was on if God is pleased, then God will deliver He told the people not to rebel against God, not to fear the people. In in, uh, uh, Numbers 14.9, Caleb said that God would remove the protection of the inhabitants of the land and that His presence would be with him. Look, the only reason they're there is because God is protecting them. And I am sure that God is going to remove the shade, and that's the the Hebrew word here to... to, um, uh, 
to, for protection, that it was so hot that, a, that a, a shade was over them, and he would remove it, and they would dwindle in the heat. God will remove the protection of the inhabitants of the land, and that his presence would be with them. It wasn't that Caleb was overconfident in the ability of the Israelites to take the land. Rather, he was appropriately confident that the same mighty God who brought them out of Egypt, that they all could just look back months before. He was the one who had set the land before them, and he was the one who was going to give them victory. He was fully aware of the Canaanites. He saw them just as much as the others did. He didn't have his eyes fixed on them, however. He had his eyes fixed on the promise of God, on the God of the promise of that land. Earlier in the service, we read together from Colossians 3, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And that is what we see Caleb doing here. Faith is manifested when we see the difficulty that we are facing, not based upon how weak we are, or how strong that obstacle is that we are facing, but through the lens of who God is. How strong God is. What God has said about it or promised concerning it. The spouse who is called to love and serve a disobedient husband or wife is to approach that difficulty recognizing what God has said about their responsibility. Recognizing how God has promised to strengthen and empower them for this individual task, and that they are to fix their eyes on Him and to follow the example that He set before them. Faith produces victory because we are looking for God's direction. We are depending on His strength. We are hoping and anticipating the fulfillment of all of His promises. So what does does faith look like when we are in the midst of an obstacle? Let me suggest a couple of questions. We begin our victory over an obstacle in our lives by asking these questions. What has God said about this particular issue? When we we come to the conclusion that we are facing an obstacle, the first thing we do is we look to God. What has He said about this? What, What promises of God speak to this situation that I should be trusting in? What does God's Word say He is doing through this situation? What do I know about God's character that will shine light on this situation? How have I seen God work in the past that would impact how I might trust in Him in the future? That very hesitation to stop and to bring God into what we're seeing creates a different approach to, or a different result of how we We'll handle that situation. Think about if the spies had thought about the promise of God. They had said, how has God worked in the past? What has God promised about this? It changes. It changes everything. Unbelief sees the obstacles without God, which makes them overwhelming, defeating, and leads us to quit. But faith sees God as the one who provides the way through it. Number two. Unbelief produces rebellion while faith pursues obedience. When God is removed from the equation and His will is not submitted to, then sin is quick 
to follow. When I'm not thinking about God, I'm thinking about my lowercase God. The trinity of me, myself, and I. When we don't see God in everything, our will, our self-glory, our self-preservation will manifest itself in every situation. Not only do we see the spies and the people not enter the land that was given to them and commanded for them to possess, but we see them quickly sin, and we see that sin multiply. Immediately following the bad report, the people follow in the unbelief of the spies, and we see this progression of sin. Chapter 14, verse 1, the people of Israel listen to the bad report, and they cry and they weep that night. They've lost the joy of the Lord. They are overwhelmed that God has been unfaithful to them. Verse 2, they grumble against Moses and Aaron. Verse 4, they reject the leadership that God had put over them and they seek new leadership with the hope of going back to slavery that they once endured in Egypt. And in verse 10, they even tried to murder the leadership. Listen to what Caleb says in 14, chapter 14, verse 9. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection is gone from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The contrary is, is, is fear God. Fear God and obey. Their fear of man, their lack of faith in God, led them to rebel against the Lord. And that's why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3, 12, take care, brothers and sisters, that there will not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the Lord. That unbelief leads to sin. The, 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 the removal of God leads to sin. But again, we see Caleb and J, uh, Joshua, their faith led them to want to go into the land. It led them to be courageous. It led them to want to do what God had called them to do. Hebrews 11, it was by faith that all of those heroes of the faith acted. They did something. A great encouragement this afternoon is just sit down with Hebrews chapter 11 and see what faith produced. Obedience, righteousness, stepping out, Faith leads to action. Faith is demonstrated when we believe God to be our creator and king and we submit to his authority over our life. I, I believe that God is my creator. I believe that he's my king. And so what is stated to me by him is not an option. I believe that and therefore it leads me to obedience. Faith is demonstrated when we believe God to be wise and so we follow his commandments. Yes, it seems a little strange, but God is wise. We know that He's infinite and we are finite. We know that He sees all and knows all. We know that His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And because we know that, He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. And so we pursue righteousness. Fortunately, 40 years in the future from this text, the Israelites are standing in front of the walls of Jericho. And they're told to march around it and blow a horn. This is not military strategy that I would recommend. But they trusted in God, and that trust 
demonstrated itself in obedience, and through obedience, God received the glory because He was the one who removed the walls. Finally, unbelief leads to ruin while faith brings blessing. Beginning in Numbers 14, 11, the Lord and Moses begin a dialogue for the remainder of the chapter, which details God's judgment on the spies and the nation of Israel. In chapter 14, verse 5, we see Moses and Aaron falling on their face, which is a sign of their anticipation of some great act of judgment. Look, they saw what was happening. They saw what the people were deciding. They knew what God would do because He is holy and He is just. And so they fell on their face. Joshua and Caleb, they tear their clothes in chapter 14, verse 6, which was a demonstration of great distress and sadness. They knew that following God produced blessing, but that rebellion brought about difficulty and pain and futility. They knew where they were headed as a nation. So God says He's going to judge the nation, and Moses calls upon God's character, which is what the nation of Israel needed to do as they were looking and considering what they were going to do about moving forward. He calls upon uh, God's character to forgive them for their rejection of Him and His will. God ultimately forgives them. He keeps His promises to the nation of Israel, but He still disciplines. He allows them to miss out on the blessing and joy of the promised land for those that were Adults in that group. We see that the ten spies who gave the bad report, they die immediately by a plague in 14 verse 37. We see that the rest of Israel, those 20 years old and above, are not allowed into the promised land and would die in the wilderness over the next 38 years. So while God remains faithful to the nation of Israel and His reputation to the nations is that of deliverer and fulfiller of His promises, over one million faithless people perish in the desert because of their unbelief. The fruit of unbelief is a removal of blessing and it's an occurrence of punishment. Listen to Proverbs chapter 13, verse 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. To turn aside from the snares of death, good understanding produces favor. But the way of the treacherous is their own disaster. Verse 17. A wicked messenger falls into adversity. Verse 18. Poverty and shame will come to the one who neglects discipline. Verse 20, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Adversity pursues sinners. Unbelief leads to pain. It leads to ruin. It ultimately leads to eternal damnation because we haven't believed what God has said about Himself. We haven't believed what God has said about our sin. We haven't believed about what He has said about Jesus and His free gift of salvation ultimate ruin. But we also see that Caleb and Joshua are granted entrance into the promised land. They're the only ones from the older generation. We see that faith produces blessing. Joshua becomes Moses' successor and leads the nation of Israel in obedience 40 years later in taking the land that God had promised. 
Caleb participated in that conquest as an 80-year-old man. And after some 40 years, he asked and was granted as his inheritance of the land the portion of the hill country that included Hebron. Because he walked by it. He, that's, that's where God promised us this land, and I'm going to have it. It's going to be mine. I'm going to walk by it for the few remaining years of my life, and I'm going to see God's faithfulness. I'm going to remember God's faithfulness. I was granted Hebron. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, states that faith believes that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And again, that's, that's true in our temporary life here on earth, but it is true forever. That if we believe in what God has said about our spiritual condition, if we believe that we are a sinner and that God loves us and will forgive us and that Christ's work on the cross is what provides our salvation, if we believe in that and turn to that and that alone, then we will be saved. And much like Caleb and Joshua who entered into their promised land, we will enter into the promised land of heaven through faith. Faithlessness looks to earthly satisfaction and self-protection and it receives destruction. While faith is willing to sacrifice and experience hardship because of the knowledge that God will bless, that walking in righteousness is better by far than anything Satan or the flesh or the world would have to offer through disobedience. Faith looks to God as the rewarder even if the road seems harder to traverse and there are dangers on all sides. Our blessing is His presence. Our our blessing is His condemnation. Well, uh, Well done, my good and faithful servant. It is our prize. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it is impossible to please God. And that means that our pleasing God is dependent on us seeing Him, trusting in Him, obeying Him, and looking to Him for our reward. He is pleased when we see our sinfulness in comparison to His holiness. He is pleased when we see our need for forgiveness in light of His willingness to bestow grace and forgiveness. He is pleased when we repent of our sin and ask Him to save us. And He is pleased when we seek to live our life here on earth in faith, not just for salvation, but in our everyday life. What lens have we been looking through with the obstacles that we face in pursuing what God has called for us? Has it been faith or has it been unbelief? Is God a part of the the way you see it, or is He not anywhere in that equation? Does it lead you to obey, or do you find yourself in disobedience? Are you seeking to find blessing in Him and Him alone? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the lesson that You have uh, taught us through this story. And Lord, I pray that You would increase our faith. That we believe these things about You, but that You would help us in our unbelief. Father, we want to to be Your hands and feet. We want to do what You've called us to do. We want to receive Your 
the reward that is promised. And so we ask that you would help us in our unbelief. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.